Lord be with you. This morning I'm continuing a series of homilies uh, throughout this Lenten season on leadership. Perhaps we could even say what it is that leaders give up to respond to their calling through Lent. Today we come to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. David left there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and all of his father's house heard of it. They went down there to be with them. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. These who were with him numbered about 400. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Once again, O oh God, we place our lives and our callings in front of this open word. As your spirit inspired its writing, so we pray inspire our hearing of it, that we might have a clearer vision of what it means to serve your holy kingdom. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. David had been anointed king by Samuel long ago, but there was already a king named Saul who hadn't exactly vacated the post, and so David has to spend a long time waiting for his anointing, or as we would say, his calling to be realized. Waiting. We spend a lot of time waiting. We wait in the airports, we wait on the highways, we wait in the doctor's offices, we wait in the checkout lines, we wait at the bank, uh, we wait uh, as a normal common practice upon bureaucracies, and it all makes us just a little cranky. Just because we get a lot of practice at waiting, that doesn't mean we're good at it. Some people are involved in very severe forms of waiting. They have diseases, and they're waiting to see the chemotherapy is going to help. Couples who are waiting and waiting to see if they will get pregnant. Relationships that are on the rocks, they're doing all they can, but they have to wait to see if they're going to be able to hold this together. Anyone involved in leadership or ministry of any time needs to settle into waiting. It's a critical part of what it means to lead. You've been anointed, called. You're in a period of waiting to see what that will actually manifest itself to be. Why? Why is there always so much waiting in your life, in the lives of those you will serve? Ernest Hemingway was wounded in the First World War. They pulled 237 pieces of shrapnel out of his body during his very long period of convalescence. He spent time observing the other men on his ward. He became fascinated by the theme of waiting, because that's all there was to do. He noticed that during the long period of convalescence, some of the men became strong, and they developed a gravitas and more character. Others became trivial, and shallow, and whiny. He was so struck by this theme that it becomes a, a reoccurring thesis in most of his novels as he wrote about 
men who were waiting, uncertain what would happen to them in combat, or men who were waiting for the release of the bulls, or an old man who was adrift at sea and just waiting. His common thesis seemed to be that waiting affects people in different ways. It does not break a person, Hemingway is saying. It reveals the person. David, in his waiting, reveals that he's a runner. He's constantly on the run from Saul, thinking that he can maybe even outrun his own anxiety about how long this is taking him. And eventually he becomes exhausted, depleted, less of a person than he thought he was, and very, very hungry. At one point he runs to Nob and he goes to the priest Ahimelech's house and he demands to be fed bread. He says that he's on a mission from the king, which is a lie. He's actually on a run from the king. When the priest asks about this mission, David essentially says, you don't have the clearance, I can't really tell you about it. Another lie. And then David also says that what he's um, doing is um, trying to get bread for his men, his soldiers. But David has no soldiers at this point, it's just him. The priest explains that all he has is the holy bread. David says that'll be just fine. Fascinating thing is that Ahimelech gives him the holy bread, completely unworried, according to the text, that by giving him this, he is somehow contaminating holiness. And David gobbles down the bread. There's no condemnation for this, interestingly. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus even refers to this story to legitimate why he is healing people on the Sabbath as if both of them are trying to make the same statement, Ahimelech and Jesus, that holiness is holiness, and it cannot be contaminated because it's rooted in its ground of being in God. Part of the whole principle of the incarnation is it not that holiness comes and dwells among us, and, and we use it for all kinds of ways that don't seem appropriate. Maybe even we try to profane it, but the holy remains holy. It's part of what is revealed in this. We enter the ministry, we come to seminary at least, for all kinds of reasons. Some of them appear holy. We'll talk about our anointing or our calling or at least our search for one of those things. And then we'll enter into the ministry and we'll try to convince a search committee or a board that, that yes, we're called to this, God has led us to this moment, but let us tell the truth. Like David, we have, we have hunger. We have other reasons why we're involved in all of this. Let us at least tell the truth to ourselves. We're looking for a mission. We're looking for a sense of identity. We're, we're looking for a sense of, of significance and purpose in our lives. We at least like to have a job. We've got to pay the rent. We have all these reasons that don't sound so holy for why we do the work we do. Don't fret over that. There's no condemnation for needing a job having to pay your rent, or having motivations that don't sound so spectacular in holiness. And the period of waiting that you have now will reveal your anxieties about the things that you're worried about. Don't, don't think you have to flee those. Bring it in. You're not going to contaminate the holiness. St. Augustine, in his response to the Donatists, who were worried very much about the purity of the priesthood, said, no, no, no. When the priest stands at the altar, that 
the sins of the celebrate cannot contaminate the holiness of the sacrament. Let me say that line one more time because it's really a good one. The sins of the celebrate cannot contaminate the holiness of the sacrament. If I didn't believe that, I would never climb behind a communion table. No, it is not our hands that make the sacrament holy. It is that it is the body of Christ who's come to be with us unholy people. Well, as David learns this little lesson while he's waiting about his hunger and his mixed motives, he then runs to Gath, trying to hide from Saul and his armies. And interesting thing about that is Gath was the hometown of Goliath. And so now he's with the Philistines. He's hiding out with the enemy. And the king finds out about this. He drags David toward him. He's furious. He has Goliath's killer in his presence. David, trying to be a clever young man, decides to plead insanity. So he starts acting crazy. And he gets so disgusting and acting like crazy that the king finally just can't look at it anymore and says, just get him out of here. So then David has to run again. Every leader has to know that the Goliath you have to worry about is not the one out there. That's the one that's easiest to slay. It's the Goliath in your own heart that can rise up and get you every time. There's nothing around you that is as dangerous as that what is within you. And there's always a temptation when you get tired and hungry to go back to Gath. To do that which is the betrayal of everything you believe in. None of us are really all that confused about our convictions. But when your personal practices in life betray your convictions, well, it'll make you look crazy. The next place as he continues to run while he's waiting is to a cave in Adullam. I imagine he's there exhausted and tired from all the running, maybe thinking he's all alone. It's about that time that 400 men join him in the cave. It must have been a big cave. They say they're there to be on his team. We're your people from now on. Fascinating thing is the description we have of David's new army. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and David became their captain. Now we're ready to talk about leadership in the church. <laughs> you will soon be leading the distressed, the indebted, and the discontent. These are God's favorite kinds of people. And they are gathered into the church, and you get to be the captain. Every time I gather together with my pastor friends, it's not long before someone starts talking about how weary they are of those who are distressed and discontented. And the only surprise that we should have about this is that we're still surprised by this. This apparently goes way back. That this is who God brings together. He brings into the church people who are hungry, just like David was, just like you and I are. People who come for mixed motives. In my experience of being a pastor, most people do not come to the new members class saying that they want to be a part of this church because they finally discovered that their chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever. No, they come for all kinds of hungry reasons. They're they're looking uh, for uh, relationships. 
Uh, they're looking for personal significance, and this is a place to get what they can't find in the workplace. Uh, they're looking for somebody to know who they are. Uh, they're looking uh, to have whatever hunger of their soul met that could, the church could possibly meet. Uh, they're looking for at least somebody to know their name. These are not reasons to be condemned for coming to church. Of course we have those who are distressed and discontented around us. To not want that in the people that you serve is to miss the whole mission of our ministry. Why we have, if people were all completely um, contented and non-distressed and absolutely clear about the highest callings of their lives, frankly, we would all be out of work. This is what we do. To not want to spend your life with these people is like doctors saying they don't like hanging around sick people. It misses the mission. It misses the focus. So let us be clear about our own distress, our own discontent, and how that prepares us to help others who are also in need find the only means of grace that we found in our own lives. But the church has never been so good at its PR, and it tells the truth about its true nature. Not long ago, a student told me that he's discovered that when he's in a bar, bringing up the fact that he's a seminarian is about the worst pickup line possible. Yes, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> After you're ordained, you'll find that it doesn't really help so much get conversations started at parties or other kinds of social events either. When people do want to talk to you about the church, most of the time what they'll talk about are things like the church's hypocrisy or the church's inability to be of social relevance the way it ought to be. Or if they really get rolling, they'll talk about clergy and the problems that we have. At the end of these conversations, I always tend to say, you know, I spend an incredible amount of time with the church, and you don't know the half of it. It's so much worse than you're imagining. <laughs> so why do we do this with our lives? Why do we hang around the distressed and the discontented? Because it's where we find Jesus. I've mentioned to this to you before. Consider your call, the apostle said. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. But Christ has called us together that his power and his glory might be revealed. This is why we hang around the church. Two and three of us gathered together and we believe the promise that Christ, the Redeemer, the Transformer, is in our place. And then the most miraculous things can start to happen. That's why we stay with the church. Because it is Christ's realm of redemption. Christ can certainly work outside the church, but we know he works within it. These 400 men who came to David eventually became the most elite leaders of his kingdom. They were transformed along the way in this community. That's what community can do. It's another reason why we commit ourselves to it. It is, again, a realm of transformation for the leader and the people who are led. You are not what you appear to be. You are who you are called to be. And it's in community that this potential becomes clear.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 